Welcome to Therapy on the Cutting Edge, a podcast for therapists who want to be up to date on the latest advancements in the field of psychotherapy. I'm your host, Dr. Keith Sutton, a psychologist in the San Francisco Bay Area and the director of the Institute for the Advancement of Psychotherapy. Today I'll be speaking with Tony Rumanier, PsyD, who is the president of Sentio University, a new marriage and family therapy graduate school. He provides workshops, webinars, and advanced clinical training and supervision to clinicians around the world. Tony is the author and co-editor of over a dozen books on deliberate practice and psychotherapy training, and two series of clinical training books, The Essentials of Deliberate Practice and Advanced Therapeutics Clinical and Interpersonal Skills. In 2017, he published the widely cited article in the Atlantic Monthly, What Your Therapist Doesn't Know. Tony supports the open data movement and publishes his aggregated clinical outcome data in de-identified form on his website at drtonyr.com. A fellow of the American Psychological Association, Tony was awarded the Early Career Award by the Society for the Advancement of Psychotherapy, Division 29. Let's listen to the interview. Hi, Tony. Welcome. Hi, Keith. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here. Yeah, definitely. So, Tony, you and I know each other back from our early career days. Um, we were in an early career consultation group, and uh, recently you're reaching out about some of the work that you're doing on deliberate practice and supervision. And so, I was really intrigued and want to hear more. Um, and but before we get to that, I always like to you know hear about folks kind of thinking and and kind of evolution of thinking, how they got to doing what they're doing. Yeah, sure. Uh, I mean, you know, you know me from way back, uh, right after I graduated, uh, and you welcomed me into your consultation group, which was which was really great. Uh, you know, back then, really kind of, and you gave me some really good career advice right out of graduate school in terms of setting up a private practice. So I just want to thank you for that. Sure. Um, it really kind of helped me get the ball rolling. Uh, I mean, you have some really good advice on that. So I'm sure, I'm sure, maybe you've already done, but someday do the podcast episode just on that. Yeah. <laughs> um, I mean, it's really, it's the best career advice I've ever heard about uh, setting up a private practice came from you. So, oh, great. Uh, so thank you for that. Sure. Um, but yeah, I, uh, uh, when did I graduate? I think it was 2008 or something like that. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, I, uh, I, I spent my time in graduate school, like most trainees trying to become a, a better therapist, right? That's why I became a therapist as I wanted to help my right. clients. And I think that's true for basically all of us. And uh, I had this kind of nagging feeling throughout graduate school that while I was getting, I was learning a lot about therapy. Uh, I was getting really good at writing about therapy. I could write really good therapy and I could talk really good therapy. You know, we could debate what's better CBT or psychodynamic or what, you know, we could have these really interesting conversations. Um, if you watched videos of me actually doing therapy mm-hmm. at the time, you would see something totally different, mm. which, which means that uh, throughout graduate training, my intellectual knowledge of therapy kept increasing yeah. while my ability to actually perform therapy mm. was maybe increasing a little, but not nearly as quickly. Sure. And, you know, this was uh, frustrating. I, I, I wanted to get a lot better because I noticed I started tracking my outcome data with my clients and I noticed that a fair amount of them were not improving. Uh, you know, some percent would drop out and yeah. I, some percent would even deteriorate, meaning their symptoms would get worse sure. during treatment, uh, which was, you know, very frustrating. Uh, when I added it all up, I found that about 50% of my clients were not improving in their mm. symptoms, which, you know, at first I felt really ashamed and embarrassed. I was like, oh my gosh, like this is maybe I'm not cut out for this, you know, Mm -hmm. because no one at school was talking about it. We were reading all these books about how great these models were and, you know, empirical like just do this, this, and this. Yeah. We're going to get better. Follow this protocol, which was validated by these RCTs and then boom. And, you know, we'd hear about these miracle cases and and you go to the conferences and no one was talking about their deteriorations. You know, oh, yeah. <laughs> they would talk about these like one session miracle cases. And, mm-hmm. uh, and but then I started to read the uh, research literature on psychotherapy uh, outcomes. And I found mm-hmm. that my outcomes were actually quite average for across the field, that yeah. across the whole field, mm-hmm. uh, roughly 50% of clients don't improve. You know, there's a lot of variance in that, um, but... Mm-hmm. 
So I was a perfectly average trainee. Sure. Okay. Um, that, you know, was not where I wanted to be. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I wanted to be better. And I tried many things. Uh, and uh, I attended a lot of workshops. I uh, did a lot of consultations. I read a lot of books. Um, and I, I still never really got the feeling like I was like, okay, this is reliably making me better. Mm -hmm. This is really like the key. And then one day I was a big fan of Scott Miller. Yeah. Uh, I, yeah I was wondering am. about which outcome research you were reading and what, what measures you were using. Yeah. So uh, I was using a variety of measures, Scott Miller really. And then also Barry Duncan really inspired me uh, to yeah. start doing fit. Yeah. Uh, -huh. uh, and then, you know, your back consultation treatment. Feedback, feedback informed. informed treatment. Yeah. Yeah. Your consultation group was really good for kind of reinforcing that and guiding me in that. Yeah. Cause um, I've been using that since gosh, what was that? 2004, you know, the uh, outcome rating scale and session rating scale, Scott Miller, yeah. Barry Duncan's measures. And really the yeah. idea that by tracking outcome and by getting feedback, you can increase outcome by 65% regardless of theoretical orientation. Yeah. Yeah. So you were an early proponent to that and you were really good. I kind of heard of, about it, but you were really good at kind of showing me clinical examples. And then I met other people uh, who were really into it. So I started doing that and that helped. I mean, that's valuable. Yeah. But one thing people have found, including Scott, is there's kind of like a ceiling mm. with fit in terms of it can help you identify uh, which clients are at risk of deterioration, mm -hmm. which sometimes we don't see, you know, we have, as uh, therapists, we have blind spots. Mm. Um, and sometimes clients don't want to tell us because, yeah. you know, they just want to be nice. Um, and so the, the fit measures are good at, at identifying clients at risk of deterioration, mm -hmm. but they don't tell you what to do next, like how to fix it. Sure. Right. Mm -hmm. and so that and, and this is something scott miller figured out mm -hmm. uh and I'm, I'm sure your listeners have heard of scott miller uh yeah we did a podcast with him actually also ec excellent excellent so almost everything i've done since then is based on his work okay. Okay. <laughs> so wow. i i stand on his shoulders mm -hmm. he's been one of the most important mentors for me uh oh, throughout okay. my career uh and he noticed that, yeah, it was, it was helping therapists kind of identify when clients weren't improving, but it didn't say, what do we do next? Like, how mm -hmm. do we help? And uh, what he turned towards and started talking about was deliberate practice. Mm. And I, I, I can describe what that is Please, uh, yeah. briefly, if, if you like. Definitely. So the easiest way to describe it is like in a metaphor. So I, did you play any sports or musical instruments growing up, like in high school? Uh, I, I skied. Skied. Okay. Yep. Did you, on a team? Uh, no, no. Okay. Did you play any sports uh, on a team or any musical instruments with a teacher? <laughs> I, I played Little League for two years. The first year we won right. one game and the second year we won zero games. So okay. That <laughs> that's counts. the extent of my uh, team that, sports. That counts. Great. So Little okay. League. So that's baseball, right? Yep. Yep. Okay. So imagine you went to your little league teacher or coach and said, you know, coach, I love this. I, I love baseball. I think I'm kind of mm -hmm. talented at it. In fact, I think I want to play professionally someday, mm -hmm. but I just want to be honest with you. I don't have time to practice. I can't go mm -hmm. to practice. Mm -hmm. I've got uh, school. I got work. I got my family. I just, you know, too many commitments. How about instead of going to baseball practice, Instead, I do 3,000 hours of baseball games, <laughs> and I write down notes, right. I even videotape some right. games, and I'll meet with you for one-on-one -on -one supervision or group supervision every week to discuss okay. the games, and then I'll try to improve, but no practice. Do you think mm -hmm. that would get you up to uh, Major League Baseball? Um, I don't know. I imagine it would help and improve, but I don't know if it's going to give you those, what is it, like 10,000 hours or something? Bingo. Bingo. Yeah. So I bet it would be, I would be very surprised if you could find a coach that would endorse the way to get to Major League Baseball would be to just play, just play baseball, supervised yeah. experience sure. without practice. And 
however, that is our model of training therapists. Mm -hmm. Is we get a lot of experience providing therapy. Yeah. Which sometimes we call practice, but it isn't practice. Providing mm -hmm. therapy to a real client is actually work performance. Yeah. And the reason is, is when you have a real client in front of you, you can't uh, rehearse. Mm -hmm. You can't say, client, you know, I just learned this great new method, internal family systems, and I've been, you know, I want to try this one technique 50 times, yeah. and you tell me which time feels the best. Mm. Sure. Right? Th that's to do that, you need to have a, what we call deliberate practice or rehearsal, mm. which is mm -hmm. separate from the work performance. Mm. So these are kind of like the role plays that, that all the graduate students hate, but I think are Bingo. so, you know, both for license and graduate students, I think it's so valuable to actually have that experience practicing. Um, Bingo. Perfect. Bingo. Yeah. So th these are like role plays that, as you say, graduate students hate. Now, I want to I want to emphasize that because it's not just graduate students who hate them. Uh, licensed therapists who yeah, <laughs> like very no much. One likes I, these every workshop they do, there's a role play. In it. <laughs> like, yeah, I know you've led a lot of workshops, so you see this. Oh yeah, people are like, oh no, 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 no. I'd rather, I'd rather just talk about the model yes, yes. than actually role play doing it. Mm -hmm. Right, and yet when you're giving a workshop, I mean, how much more valuable is the actual rehearsal rather than the talking about it? Yeah, it's that experiential aspect that you don't get if you're just all cognitive. And that's why, especially too, I, I really uh, am a big proponent of one-way mirror training. Bingo. You know, because you're actually being guided to do something different in the Bingo. moment. The experiential training. And there's a lot of research that shows experiential training is just way more effective than mm -hmm. academic training uh, with therapy. Because therapy is a performance art. Yeah. Right. The therapy is it's not a philosophy. You're not like writing down things and giving it to your client. You're performing in an improvised fashion with your client. And by performing, I, I don't mean like faking it. You're authentic, but it is yeah. but it is a performance. You're doing it. Sure. Rather than thinking or writing about it like a dance or something like Bingo. that. It's, it's yeah. Bingo. Yeah. Or an improvised jazz performance, maybe exactly. or or something like that. Um. And so, uh, but I wanted to emphasize what you said about the, that no one seems to like it. And deliberate practice research actually shows this, uh -huh. is okay. that when it's good deliberate practice, it's not super fun. Mm -hmm. Because deliberate practice, when it's done well, is done right at the zone of your competences or at the edge mm -hmm. of your competence. It's called the zone of proximal development. Yes. So just beyond your ability. So I, I know you do uh, trainings in uh, emotion-focused therapy for couples, right? Yes. Mm -hmm. Okay. And I presume when you're doing the rehearsals, the role plays, you're trying to help the trainees, even licensed therapists kind of stretch, right? Try something they haven't been able to do before. Yeah, definitely. So that's called the zone of proximal development. Mm -hmm. So just beyond your ability. And you know what? When you're, when you're rehearsing, just beyond your ability, you're going to screw up. Yeah, feels uncomfortable. It's uncomfortable. And, 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 not, and, there's and as therapists, we know there's multiple levels of discomfort. There's a discomfort mm -hmm. in, okay, here's a skill that I haven't really mastered. There's yeah. also discomfort in here's some emotional material that's being stirred up mm -hmm. by, by what we're doing. And that can be uncomfortable as well. Yeah. Well, I think in the field too, it's also, you can talk a good game, but then mm. when you're actually doing a role play or you're showing right. the video, it's a whole other right. level that can bring up a lot of anxiety or, right. or embarrassment or so right. on. It was like right. saying on paper versus kind of in action. Right. That's where the rubber hits the road. Now, I know this is something that you encouraged me to do early on, which is record videos mm -hmm. uh, of my work. Um, and I did a lot of that. And that was super helpful. Right. And then unfortunately, not everyone does that. Not every graduate program mm -hmm. does that. Uh, and if we don't watch videos of our own work, we can end up with this kind of split reality where we have an image in our mind of what we're doing. Yes, totally. <laughs> which is a little different than what we're actually doing. Mm -hmm. uh, so we, we actually encourage therapists to watch videos of their work throughout their entire career. Mm -hmm. uh, and use that as a basis for deliberate practice. 
Well, and it's so important too. I've actually been doing this recently because I, I have uh, some licensed therapists that I do consultation groups and I have some yeah. folks in our nonprofit, which I'm supervising. Yeah. And so I also show some of some of my work and sometimes mm. just something from that week and, and mm. that I was kind of showing. And sometimes I'm just figuring out what I'm doing and actually putting it into words mm. by trying to explain what I'm doing. Right. You know, something that is just something I might be doing naturally. And then right. it makes you think about it. Right. This kind of feedback loop of right. like, doing it, thinking about why you're doing it and thinking, and then of course, yeah, noticing where I'm like, oh, I should have done this here. I wonder why I didn't do right. that. Now I want to underline a few things in what you just said. First of all, you're developing a meta awareness of your own work, mm -hmm. which is very hard to do actually while you're working with a client because you're yeah. so focused on attuning with them, mm -hmm. right? Like there's probably yeah. some meta awareness going yeah. on, but not like a lot, you know? Mm -hmm. And that's appropriate. <laughs> like we really yeah. want to focus on the client and attune with the client, right? Definitely. And so it really does take reflection and not just intellectual reflection, but watching video later to get the full amount of meta reflection mm -hmm. on your work. Definitely. So there's that. Second of all, I just want to point out that you're still watching videos of your work mm -hmm. and you are still analyzing your own work you're still being surprised by your own work yeah definitely now you know you you know you are extremely successful you're very established you don't need to do this right well, well want to keep getting better and better you know there's well, always something to learn okay so so i just want to really highlight this for the listeners because i mean you could coast keith you could easily just coast from now on you know <laughs> what i mean and just like rely on your reputation and you'd be fine and you know what i mean um, the, you know, the board of psychology is not expecting you to do this. Like no one's expecting you to do this. Yeah, it's true. internal motivation to get better, mm -hmm. which I just think is so important to highlight because that's what, I mean, that's what it takes in our field In many other fields work performance is public. Yeah. So if you were, let's say a basketball player, or let's say you, you know, pursued the career in major league baseball, you know, mm -hmm. that you dreamed about in little league sure. and, <laughs> You, you, if, you know, when a baseball player performs, it's public. Yeah. Everybody's <laughs> like, seeing that. Everyone sees, you know, and so they don't have the option of hiding their work. Mm -hmm. They don't have the option of telling themselves stories about their performance. Yeah. Right. If you were a artist, mm -hmm. your work would be public. If you were an actor, your work would be public. If you were a pilot, your work would be public. Yeah. Right. I would say therapists, we have the distinct disadvantage mm -hmm. that our work is extremely private. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there's good reasons for that around yeah, confidentiality yeah. and all. I, I'm, not, I'm not arguing against that. Definitely. I'm just saying it's actually, it works against our ability to improve our performance. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And I think that, you know, unless you're in like, you know, we've, we've got a group practice and, you know, the research has also shown if you're in a group practice mm. and to have better outcomes because you are looking at your work, getting other mm. perspectives, but yeah, in private practice, if you're not getting consultation, if you're not talking with colleagues, you're just kind of doing what you're doing, then um, yeah, it's, there is no kind of outside eyes or so on to kind of look at that or, or and, you know, I think that's why a lot of burnout also happens yeah. too, you know, that oftentimes part of dealing with burnout is not only self-care, but it's also going to trainings, getting consultation, getting kind of excited about kind of doing something new or trying something new or feeling, you know, uh, moving beyond if you're feeling helpless and not yeah. like you were saying with your clients feeling like, oh, I don't feel like I'm achieving enough, you know, 50% aren't approving. Yeah. And kind of when you start working on improving that, that brings a lot of energy. Yeah. Yeah. It brings a lot of energy, but it's not all comfortable energy. <laughs> yes, that's true. Yes. You have to be willing to, to go outside that, to, to stretch and to, to stretch. Yeah, yeah, definitely. To stretch. Now the top performers in every field stretch throughout their whole career, mm -hmm. right? Like the top musicians, they don't stop getting coaching. Like they don't stop yeah. practicing. Right. Like mm -hmm. if you listen to, you know, uh, hear interviews with like Yo-Yo Ma or, you know, the top, you know, musicians or the top yeah. athletes, and they actually practice more than everyone else. Yeah. So uh, somehow therapists, we've ended up in a culture where we, where that's not the standard. The standard is once you graduate from graduate school, once you get licensed, you stop being supervised, you stop being coached, 
and uh, and then you you just coast. And then you know people have this unfortunately this idea that well as long as I keep doing therapy I'm getting better. And unfortunately, research shows that repeated work performance itself does not make you better. Yes. And I would use a, a metaphor. You know, I got my driver's license uh, maybe, you know, coming up on, th you know, 30 years ago. Yeah. I am not a better driver <laughs> after 30 years of driving. Sure. <laughs> I got a lot of miles under my belt. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> And it's because I'm not getting feedback. Well, sometimes I even get good feedback. I just am not rehearsing based on that feedback. Sure. That's yeah. how we get better. Yeah, and I, I always uh, think, and I don't know how true this is, the Michael Jordan story that, uh, you know, I guess he got cut or something from his high school basketball team or something All like right. that. So yeah. It wasn't that he was naturally so right. much better than others at basketball, right. but it was about that deliberate practice because when he would play and he would take right. shots, he would... He would calculate and notice and get that right. feedback and keep kind of working on tweaking right. things rather than like you're saying just shooting free throw after free throw right. kind of aimlessly right. um it's it's not only about those hours but yeah how you're actually what you're doing during those hours yeah so just kind of mindlessly rehearsing something won't make you better yeah right uh like if i wanted to learn to play golf and i just went out to a you know golf course and started swinging a you know, whatever, a golf puck or whatever it is, I, I would not get better. Now, if I had a coach watching me and being like, Tony, do this a little better, do this a little better, lift your elbow, lift your shoulder, I could get better probably quite quickly. Yeah. So, um, okay. So the question is, is how do we apply this to mm -hmm. psychotherapy? Yeah. Right. Because we've got some really good models for psychotherapy, but mm -hmm. then the question is, is how do we practice them? Yes. Now there's some models like the EFT for couples and which have, you know, kind of, you know, got a good head start on this where there's yeah. a lot of ways to kind of rehearse as part of the training. Definitely. Yeah. Part of the core skills is a huge aspect of doing lots of, lots of role plays and, yeah. and experiencing the different positions of the couples right. and the therapists and so on. Right. Right. So many models of therapy, unfortunately don't have that. Mm -hmm. Or maybe, you know, a supervisor here or there is kind of improvised something, but it's not really a, a standardized part of the pedagogy. Yeah. And so that is what we have um, dedicated ourselves is uh, we've got a, a book series with American Psychological Association where we are partnering with uh, some leading uh, teachers and supervisors mm -hmm. for the major models of therapy. Great. And we go to them and we say, identify uh, 10 or 12 skills from your model of therapy. Mm -hmm. And we will help you de develop deliberate practice exercises for those skills. Mm -hmm. Now, ideally there are skills uh, that there's kind of a sweet spot for deliberate practice. Yeah. These are skills that the trainee and by trainee, I'm speaking broadly. It could be a licensed therapist who's, mm -hmm. you know, picking up this model later in their career. But it's a skill that the learner understands well intellectually. So maybe they could write a paper about, sure. but, but might have trouble performing. Yes. Particularly with a client in a higher emotional arousal situation. Mm -hmm. And so we develop a deliberate practice exercise, which are basically scripted uh, role plays. Mm -hmm. And we then send the exercise out to test sites. We have volunteer test sites around the world that are yeah. testing these exercises. Mm -hmm. They videotape themselves testing the exercise, send us the video, and we look at the video and see, is this, is this going how we hoped? And then yes. we revise the exercise. And this goes for about a year. And then we've got a book. Uh, our, first, our first book was a deliberate practice for emotion-focused therapy for individuals. Okay, great. And then we got a deliver practice for CBT. We're about to release a deliver practice for child adolescent therapy, for motivational right. interviewing, uh, for systemic family therapy. Mm -hmm. And then there's a bunch of other books in the works to, uh, for uh, DBT, right. uh, you know, ADP. I mean, it just kind of keeps going down the line. Wonderful. Yeah. Very cool. Yeah. I, um, you know, I think that too, that what I've, yeah, I mean, what I've noticed also, especially in supervising and consultations and so on, is also to just, you know, I think 
some of the common factors piece, of course, goes down to the relationship between the therapist mm. and the client. Yeah. And um, particularly, I found motivational interviewing just kind of invaluable for that yeah. ability to be able to attune with your client and yeah. really get on the same page before you're moving forward. Because yeah. many therapists tend to be, uh, you know, kind of jumping ahead of the client yeah. when the client's not along, not on the bus right. with them or kind of pulling them along. And right. that's where you kind of get some of those, those kind of alliance difficulties. Um, but as you're saying, also, there's also kind of, you know, the, the techniques and putting those in, and I'm thinking of uh, exposure of work, yeah. particularly, you know, I know my first time doing it, I was like, gosh, am I supposed to have them doing deep breathing or like yeah. what, you know, and, and it wasn't really till I saw the obsessed series from A&E with real mm. therapists doing real, you know, exposure work with OCD that it really kind of clicked. And that's something yeah. that I do with the, the folks that I'm training, kind of showing them these videos and helping them see because, yeah, it, there's there's those skills that, that are also like beyond the intellectual and really like, how do you sit with these things too? Right. I mean, you know, many trainees find that when they're doing exposure with a client, it's actually an exposure for both people. Yes, totally. totally. <laughs> right. Yeah, because as therapists, we have to attune with the person who's going through the exposure, so yeah. we're going to feel that. <laughs> and especially so, if you're, especially if you're new and you don't necessarily have the confidence yet mm, that this is going to work, right? Because I know, like, with whether it be like EMDR or right. exposure, you're asking the person to do this thing that's going to bring up a great deal of intense emotion, yeah. and when you haven't done it before and you haven't seen it work time yeah. after time after time. Sometimes you can sit there being like, oh gosh, like I'm yeah. doing the right thing here. Yeah. What's going to happen here? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. Is my client going to fall over from this? Yeah. So if given the opportunity to rehearse, trainees can feel a lot more confident before they're actually uh, performing with a real client. Yeah. Um, so uh, yeah. So, so th there's something you said that I want to, uh, again, highlight, which is you mentioned the common factors, right? Yeah. So these are the variables uh, in therapy that have been identified to be kind of uh, most helpful, in many cases, mm -hmm. more helpful than the specific factors from specific yeah. therapy models, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, this is, you know, based off the work of like Bruce Wampold, uh, Jordan, John Norcross, um, a whole bunch of people, right? Yeah. And Scott Miller's talked about this a lot, of course. Uh, now, our books are focused on the specific models of therapy. However, yeah. we've noticed that uh, the majority of the skills across the books are actually very similar. Mm, interesting. Where they focus first on building an alliance, building you know positive regard and trust, building expectations, mm -hmm. getting agreement on the tasks of therapy, the goals of therapy, yeah. uh, addressing ruptures. These are all common factors. Yeah, totally. And so it's kind of cool seeing how each of the models is has almost like a different style yeah. uh, or a different approach, but they're aiming in the same direction. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And they're, they're also kind of building on that foundation. Mm. Yeah. There's someone raised an interesting, I forget who it is. Someone raised an interesting theory the other day where the specific models of therapy are really just helping therapists with different personality styles use common factors. And we're going to use them differently depending on our personality style. D depending on the therapist's personality yes. style. Yeah. Yeah. And then ideally that matches with the client's personality yeah, style. Yeah. When you have a good match, then you're, you know, good to go. Definitely. Definitely. Yeah. And I think that that piece too, you know, that also, I mean, I think where the, the theory and technique come into play also with the alliance is that the more the therapist feels confident in whatever they're doing that, and, and that it makes sense to them. They're not just doing CBT, for example, because somebody said it was good, but they like, right. that's their worldview, right? That, that our perceptions are colored by, you know, our, our experience is colored by our perceptions, right? You know, that, that when it's kind of more of a, a lived experience, as well as, um, you know, just having that roadmap and knowing where you are in the therapy and yeah. where you're going, yeah. that translates to how you are with the client. Yeah. Um, but it sounds like you could intermix different kind of approaches to get to that same end of the, the confidence and the kind of feeling competent and, and all those pieces. Yeah. I mean, if you look, I totally agree. Like if you look at expert performers in music or sports, 
I mean, even even sports, they will bring in techniques from other, you know, perform like from other methods. Yeah. And they'll kind of integrate them in. And sometimes the, the very top performers are kind of integrating a whole bunch of different material, mm. which they've learned throughout their career. But yeah. I want to emphasize they, they're not just reading books about it like they're rehearsing it. Yeah. So it's embodied. Mm-hmm. And so it's kind of we, we call it muscle memory. Yeah. So the skills are in your bones. So, for example, when you're working with a couple uh, and let's say it's a high conflict couple, you know, this EFT skills are in your bones and it yeah. can just come out immediately. You mm-hmm. know what I mean? Uh, and that's because you've rehearsed it. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. And it takes time, especially with EFT. Mm-hmm. You know, I trained in that for many, many years before yeah. I got certified in a super certified yeah. supervisor. But I kind of felt like once I once I really got that process orientation. Yeah. It was almost like uh, there's a scene in the Matrix movie where all of a sudden you start seeing all the ones and zeros coming down and like, you know, just kind of seeing the right. whole, uh, everything right. in this kind of different light. Right. Um, right. And it's hard to unsee it after that. But it, yeah. but again, that process of getting yeah. from, from here to there is, yeah. is takes time. Yeah. It's hard to you can't quite rush it. No, you can't. Now, I remember when I was starting out, I would read books on psychotherapy theory and mm-hmm. I would memorize the book. And I'd even sometimes memorize the lines that like mm-hmm. Becker, whoever was saying. Yeah. And then I would get really frustrated and disappointed when it just like when it wouldn't work for me. Yeah. You know, yeah. and it's because I was in this model of like, this is I just need the intellectual understanding. Yeah. That's enough. When really that's crazy. That's not nearly enough. I needed many years of rehearsal mm-hmm. before it could move into muscle memory and I'd be able to perform it in a very flexible, intuitive, uh, you know, adaptable yeah. uh, way. Timing so is so important too. Bingo. Kind of the, again, the kind of, yeah, the orchestra or the dance of the therapy of kind of when Bingo. you're going to introduce information. I think for a lot of um, folks early in their training or so on, oftentimes they're, you know, they're maybe only seeing like maybe five, 10 hours of yeah. time a week, but they're, you know, talking to supervisors and group supervisors and in their classes. And then once they finally get into the session, you know, they've talked five hours about the one hour session <laughs> and then they in the, right out the bat, they're like, well, I think this is what's going on. The person's like, no, I don't think so. And like, oh, you know. I remember that. Oh, you're totally triggering me. I totally remember exactly that. <laughs> Dude, I had that. You know, you think you figured it out, and then you're, and then you're like, why didn't that work? And then again, realizing that you don't. Again, yeah. it takes time to learn those nuances yeah. and the timing and, yeah. and kind of when that's going to come in. Um, yeah. Now, from what I understand too, also there's some good research on on folks that are in training and and they're affecting because there is actually a, a bit of a mindset of trying to learn and trying to think of differently versus folks maybe that have been in practice so long right. but aren't necessarily doing that deliberate practice. Yeah. So so trainees have an advantage uh, where they do not consider themselves to be experts mm-hmm. and they do not have this kind of reputation or whatever to defend. Yeah. Right. And so uh, they can often be more open to feedback, more open. You know, like I, I remember my supervisees are like, tell me what to do. I'm open. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I want to know what to do. I'll take you anything. Know? Yeah. Yeah. Anything. Right. And so uh, and we found this when we go around and do workshops and we ask for volunteers from the audience. It's actually a lot more stressful and vulnerable when someone who's been licensed for 20 years volunteers mm-hmm. because they have this whole kind of reputation or self-image to defend. Sure, sure. Right. Uh, and so that is an advantage for trainees. Unfortunately, you know, uh, most graduate school, you know, the tradition in therapy training is to really emphasize the academics. Yeah. And really under-emphasize experiential training like you might get some experiential training a little bit in your practicum yeah a little bit uh, you know uh here and there i i know uh systemic family training is is better at this mm-hmm. yeah. right uh yeah, so that some are better than others sure um but it, it it typically you know typically we're still using freud's model of training like even yeah. cbt training it uses freud's model which is a yeah. lot of lecture a lot of reading a lot of writing mm-hmm. and yeah. then supervised performance with real clients. Yeah. And we, we were going around doing workshops and we were teaching uh, uh, faculty mm-hmm. 
how to incorporate more deliberate practice in their courses. And they would get all excited. And then they'd come back to us three months later and be like, you know, I just couldn't do it. Mm. There, there was just too much inertia and no, I mean, there was no one said, don't do it. There's no bad guys, yeah, you know, yeah. trying to stop them. There's just too much inertia at their university. And just given all the other demands, they just couldn't do it. Mm-hmm. And so we realized it's really unfair for us to try to get everyone else to implement these changes. Mm. And so about a year and a half ago, we decided that we have to open our own graduate school. Oh, wow. Great. And and so that's what we're doing now is we're forming Sentio University and we're starting with an MFT graduate program, Uh uh, which is a graduate program in California, which is a standalone, uh, unaffiliated with any other school, because we knew that if we affiliated with another school, we'd have to basically, you know, get we'd get caught up in their inertia. Yeah, yeah. And uh, we filed all the paperwork, which, uh, and let me tell you, if you ever think about starting a graduate school, there's a lot of paperwork. I I imagine. (laughs) (laughs) It's, uh, and it's basically everything I spent my career trying to avoid. Like I now have to do all of it uh, (laughs) times 10. Uh, And so our paperwork is being uh, processed by the uh, California regulators. And in about roughly two years, we're going to be able to begin admissions for our new MFT graduate program. Where is that going to be located? So it's located to start in California. Mm -hmm. The actual classes are going to be online. I see. But the practicum will be a mixture of online and in person in Mm -hmm. different locations. Oh, wonderful. And what we're doing differently is 50% of every class is going to be rehearsal. Mm, And when I say every class, I mean literally every class. So that includes an assessment class. That includes an ethics class. Mm. That includes, uh, I mean, literally every class, 50%. So out of a three-hour class, an hour and a half is going to be spent rehearsing key skills. And we're developing exercises for all these classes. So you go through an entire MFT curriculum and we've got exercises for every class. Mm, very cool. Um, yeah, I actually, I taught a graduate school class this last summer and one of the, the final, basically, I had them do a stage four session of evolving structural strategic family therapy uh-huh. or our four stage model. Uh-huh. And just even as, as the trainer professor, it was so interesting to see you know, to have 20 videos of, mm. you know, kind of role plays and being able to look. And it was almost like a coding, a research experiment, yeah. like, which again, just from watching other people do yeah. it, realizing like, oh, like when they did this, that went right. totally off track. When they did right. that, that kind of kept it on track and almost like kind of those nuances, which I imagine for the teachers also is going to be a helpful feedback. Yeah. Even kind of noticing and even refining some yeah. of those kind of key moments that, that can be uh, yeah, that you could guide someone around. Yeah. So what you're describing is, I would, I would suggest that is an ideal learning, uh, situation for trainees. And I would suggest your trainees are very lucky and many (laughs) trainees are not going to get a lot of that. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and I, I, look, I know a lot of faculty that want to provide that. They just don't Mm -hmm. know how, because they weren't, you know, they weren't taught to do that. And the university isn't providing the resources to do it. You know yeah. what I mean? There's no bad guys here. It's not like anyone oh, is stopping them. It's just like there aren't structural supports. Yeah. And it's just kind of doing supports. what was done you yeah. know, before. Um, right. Yeah, there's actually a, a woman, Judy Hess, in the Bay Area here. She's she's retired now from teaching, but she taught a family therapy class. And she would each class, she would have the students bring in their family. Mm. Um, if they were local and they would actually do a family therapy session or they would, um, you know, they would role play if the family couldn't be available or have the family over the phone or video. But but really, again, helping the students to have this kind of experiential experience. Um, But that was at CIIS, the California Institute for Clinical Studies. Yeah, they're a little progressive. (laughs) They got all sorts of interesting things going on there. But but talk about experiential. Now, Now, notice she was from the MFT tradition. Mm-hmm. And, 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 and as, as I understand it, the MFT training tradition has always been a generation ahead or more of yeah. the other of the other uh, associations in terms of uh, experiential training. And so yeah. we're starting an MFT and then we're going to open a psychology program and a counseling program and a social Great. work program. Um, and but yeah, but we're, we want to start from the very first class, literally every class throughout the whole thing. There's going to be deliberate practice. Everything's going to be videotaped. Everyone's going to be watching their videos. No one's going to hide anything. There's going to yeah. be a culture of that from the very beginning. Yeah, good. 
So that's one thing we're going to be doing differently. The other thing we're going to be doing differently is we're going to be having a, using FIT, feedback informed treatment, uh -huh. in all the practicums. Great. And trainees are going to be looking at their aggregate outcome data. Mm -hmm. And it's going to be shared in the graduate program. It's going to be shared in the practicum. Great. And it's going to be like a like an athlete. They know their scores. Yeah. Right. Everyone knows each other's scores. Yeah, and so we can all be okay with it or whatever. They know their batting average. They know what they're doing. Right. It's like an actor. Everyone knows what you're doing. Right. Everyone knows what you're screwing up. Yeah. Like it kind of destigmatizes it. It takes the shame out of it. Right. Mm -hmm. And it's like, okay. Uh, it, it, like we're, we've all got strengths. We've all got weaknesses and we're going to work on it. Mm -hmm. Great. That's wonderful. Are you going to do some research on this training program? Yeah. So we've got a team of researchers that are going to be uh, collecting data all the way through the whole thing. Yeah. And then over time, we're going to use that data to see, you know, how is this helping? Mm -hmm. How is it not helping? What can we improve? I assume, look, there's no way we're going to get everything right out of the gate. You know what I mean? Sure, like sure. This, it'll take 20, 30 years to figure out how to really do this well. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, and then we're also going to open source all our training materials so other graduate programs can use them uh, okay. at, you know, however they want. And hopefully they'll collect data as well. That'd be great. And then as a field, we can you know, just move towards more effective methods of training. Mm -hmm. Perfect. So yeah, so that sounds great. I mean, that's kind of just, yeah, taking it to that whole next level of even from the start of graduate school having that different experience and practicing. And I imagine those students are going to come out after those, you know, two years or so, you know, in, in a much different place than, than other folks that maybe, you know, MFTs who have only gotten maybe uh, 500 hours of practice or, or, or so on um, supervised, but not observed like that. Yeah. I mean, I mean, usually students might get 500 hours of uh, of performance with a client. Exactly. Yeah. Right. Supervised performance. Uh, what what worries me? You know, I graduated with zero hours of actual practice. I had a lot of supervised performance, and so that's our baseline is zero. Yeah, that's true. true. <laughs> so it, you know, there's a lot of room to grow uh, above yeah. that. Yeah. Um, good. Good. Yeah, great. I, yeah, no, I think it's so important to be looking at your videos, to be role playing. And, and there's so much too that, you know, you can also learn about yourself or, you know, in supervision with my supervisees, you know, kind of applying some EFT of like, you know, what was yeah. happening for you right then that right. led you to say X, Y, or Z in that, in that moment. And then oftentimes they can kind of, the more in tune they can connect to themselves, the more they can kind of see how that might be influencing the decisions they're making within the sessions, which again, may, may, they may not have necessarily been aware of. Yeah, so this is super important what you're talking about. Uh, you know, psychodynamic therapists might call it counter-transference. Mm -hmm. uh, CBT therapists might call it experiential avoidance. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, every model has their own word for it, yeah. but I, it's also called the person of the therapist. Mm -hmm. And this is really, really important. And this is something we try to integrate into deliberate practice. You're not just rehearsing kind of how to uh, creatively, improvisationally respond to the client. Yeah. You're also rehearsing self-awareness of yourself, mm -hmm. of the therapist. Yeah. And you're developing uh, awareness of your own weaknesses. Like, whoa, you know, when I maybe uh, when I work with an angry man, you know, I start to have anxiety or yeah. maybe when I work with a you know, some uh, children, like, you know, children who are yeah. being abused. Whoa, I have all this really strong anger that I need yeah, to, yeah. you know, process or I don't know, something like that, right? Like, yeah. We all have triggers, right? Yeah, I was just at a, a, a conference this last weekend, we brought out uh, Dick Schwartz. Mm -hmm. And he was talking about like, when he's working with a couple, and one of the couples has the same parts as he does. Mm. You know, sometimes he might react in a way and then actually be like oh sorry that's that's one of my parts right. i need to kind of put that to the side right now or again kind of using that within right. the, the framework of the therapy and kind of even speaking to one's own parts or again being aware of one's own parts that might be coming up bingo bingo um, so yeah. i know when i was going through graduate school my supervisor would talk about that and mm -hmm. that helped and i went to my own therapy and i would talk yeah. about it and that helped and I, you know i definitely encourage trainees to do that uh, what I was missing, though, was rehearsing mm -hmm. with that state of my own emotional arousal. Mm. 
And so something I started doing later was I would watch uh, videos of myself doing therapy with clients that triggered my own countertransference. Mm. And while I watched the video, I would just be aware of my own countertransference or my yeah. own parts in yeah. IFS language. Mm -hmm. And I would rehearse kind of how to engage despite that. Mm -hmm. And it, it's almost like how firefighters will rehearse how to do their job while they're terrified. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> right. I mean, we're firefighters right? emotionally. Sure. Right? Yeah, yeah, totally. Well, it's like the yeah, it's like boot camp or something like that where they yeah. get, they increase that emotional intensity right. while doing the training or so on. Right. So that when they're in those situations and they're triggered in that fight or flight that they can right. perform. I, I mean, I would suggest our job in some ways, you know, some people might not like this, but I would say in some ways our work is harder than firefighters or soldiers or people who are working in high arousal situations because they their goal is to end it. Yeah. Right. Like the firefighter goes into the building and, you know, there's not much of a discussion, discussion or negotiation. Yeah. Right. They'll just like grab you and like run out of the building. Right. Sure, sure. Like we have to go into the burning building, metaphorically speaking, and sit down with the client to be like, how are you feeling? What are your goals? Would you like to leave the building? The client sure. might be like, oh, no, 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 no. I've been in here a long time. It's really not a big deal. And we, yeah, we have to right. be like, no, it's okay to leave the building. <laughs> they might say, I'm scared to go up through that door. We'll be like, yeah. okay, how about the yeah. window? Oh, I'm scared of heights. And, and, then, and then we'll be like, okay, why don't we sit in this burning building for three months and build a relationship and yeah, trust right. before we can try to leave? you know? Yeah. Well, yeah. Unfortunately for us as therapists, we get to leave that building and come back a, a, every week and only spend an hour rather than getting burned up like the firemen. But definitely, I think that idea of like, yes, yeah. kind of seeing that. And I think that's also where the boundaries come in for therapists, sure. because sometimes that's hard for therapists because they're like, your building's on fire. Right. And the person's like, ah, I'm okay here. And then when the therapist leaves after the hour, the whole week, they're like, oh, they're in this. Right. But you know, part of beginning to learn those boundaries is also right. seeing kind of where you begin and, and the client ends so that, you know, you're not necessarily, yeah, getting and which in motivational interviewing, they call it the writing reflex. Mm. Like, you, you know, yeah. what's right. And you're going to try and get them onto the right side, which then leads to sometimes strong arming a client or pulling them along, which ends up leading to quote unquote resistance, which one of the things that I learned from motivational interviewing that was early on before even graduate school is that, you know, resistance is due to the therapist, not necessarily yeah. the client. And right. that when we're hitting up against resistance, it means kind of like you're saying with those clients, like 50% not improving rather than being like, oh, those are all resistant clients looking at what, what am I doing here? Right. You know, is there something that I need to be doing differently or learning right. or figuring out because, um, yeah, and turning back back inward? Yeah. So I would suggest it's not just learning about resistance or, or boundaries or patience. It's rehearsing it. Yeah. Rehearsing. Yeah. Because learning about something when you have to perform it in a high emotional arousal situation, when you have, a you know, a lot of countertransference sure. is like often not enough. You know what I yeah. mean? And so, uh, you know, I got pretty good at understanding MI theory, but you know, yeah, yeah. Applying it is a totally. whole other story. Yeah. Uh, well, it's, like, it's like teaching somebody a deep breathing exercise, you know, it's like, yeah, they might be able to do it in the office, but then right. when they're spiraling or even as right. therapists, when we get triggered, you know, it's like that stuff goes out the window we're right. in that, when we're in that kind of amygdala limbic kind of zone. Right. So we've actually created video exercises specifically on what you're talking about around boundaries. Because, mm, you know, this is a, a perennial challenge for therapy, no matter what model of therapy you're doing. Yeah. Um, and so we've got sample video exercises for free on our the university website, sentio.org. And we encourage uh, therapists, trainees to use them. They're all free to use. Everything we do is open source. So uh, oh. if any faculty are listening, supervisors, they're welcome to use these exercises in their courses with their supervisees. Uh, and it gives trainees an opportunity to rehearse uh, challenging moments in therapy, often including boundaries. Yeah, great. Uh, before, you know, they are in really in it with the client. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Well, great. Well, this is so wonderful. I love the work that you're doing. And I, I think, you know, this is, you know, coming from that place of wanting to improve, wanting to develop, you know, that that deliberate practice is so important. So I'm, I'm so great that you kind of 
went to that and really kind of built on that and then even expanded upon that because you know seeing that there's that problem that this this was lacking in training and then looking at how can i kind of give back to others to help and the field and so on to be able to develop this it's just uh, really awesome um great well, work. I, I mean thank you keith i mean something you know that helped a lot and I had a number of experiences, in, you know, including your consultation group, where I just realized this is a universal challenge. Like, we're all yeah. alike in this. Yeah. Like, there's no exceptions. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, and so that really helped me kind of, it helped destigmatize it. It helped me move past my shame mm-hmm. and be like, okay, you know, this is like everything else. Like, if I want to get better at it, I got to practice it. You know, I yeah. mean, it's not like magic, you know? Yeah, Definitely. Yeah. And I, I know there's a lot of folks I've heard that, you know, are burnt down. Sometimes like, gosh, it's so hard when people, you know, the clients never change or something like that. And I was like, what, you know, like, and, and I, I couldn't imagine being in that experience because for better or for worse, I, I end up being uh, uh, endlessly hopeful yeah. um, and, you know, seeing clients kind of rise, you know, Phoenix rising from the ashes, yeah. that, you know, it may not be in that moment. It may not, right. you know, they might not get out of the burning building, but it can happen. But, you know, being able to, to kind of, yeah, be patient and be able to, you know, again, and also building your own skills and practice, uh, having that practice. Yeah, I mean, there is reason to hope, you know, because there's, you know, we've got our whole career, we, we can just keep getting better, and we can help more and more and more clients. Definitely. And uh, it's, it's very inspiring. Um, and it's been really cool to meet so many trainees and therapists who are so dedicated you know, like yourself yeah. to just continual career improvement. You know, I mean, your whole career, you're going to be doing this, right? And I mean, yeah. that's, that's really cool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It keeps me energized. Yeah. Well, hey, Tony, it was so great to, to connect with you again. Yeah. And you're doing such great work. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I really appreciate it. And we'll definitely link to the, to the university and all those resources. Uh, thank you, Keith. This has been really fun talking about it. Great. Take care. Okay, bye. Bye-bye. Thank you for joining us. If you're wanting to use this podcast to earn continuing education credits, please go to our website at therapyonthecuttingedge.com. Our podcast is brought to you by the Institute for the Advancement of Psychotherapy, providing in-person and remote therapy in the San Francisco Bay Area. IAP provides training for licensed clinicians through our in-person and online programs, as well as our treatment for children, adolescents, families, couples, and individual adults. For more information, go to SF. IAP.com or call 415-617-5932. Also, we really appreciate feedback. And if you have something you're interested in, something that's on the cutting edge of the field of therapy and think clinicians should know about it, send us an email or call us. We're always looking for the advancements in the field of psychotherapy to help in creating lasting changes for our clients.